Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Well, I get set up here. We, uh, we had a little mini-sermon already. Did you notice that? Dustin, just coming up, preaching little mini-sermons whenever he wants to. First service, you know, that doesn't work very well, because we got, like, you know, we're getting crunched into this service, and uh, so I was talking really fast, first service, trying to get through all of this, and so I'm so happy to be in second service and be able to just relax, <laughs> take as long as I want. If you have reservations for lunch, you might want to call and push those back a little bit. No, no, we'll be fine. We'll, we'll be fine. We'll get, we'll get through this together. Uh, John chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 35 to 51. And uh, this passage is still part of the, the introduction, but it's going to transition us from the public ministry of John the Baptist to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And it tells the story of Jesus' encounter with some men who will follow him and later be called his disciples. And uh, one of the, the neat things about our passage this morning is there's no parallel to this in the synoptic gospels. Uh, and yet, <clears throat> I, I have to be honest, when first approaching this text, I think it's easy to read it almost as kind of dry narration, right? I mean, it's basically, you know, we could summarize the passage, Jesus went to such and such a place and spoke to so and so and said thus and such, right? And like, that's, that's, the, that's the message, right? But there is so much more here. And, and, and at the risk of stealing my own thunder, I, I want to tell you what you're about to see, okay? We're going to see Jesus glorified. And you're going to hear this like a, like a broken record, right? Like the, the focus is on Jesus Christ as we go through the Gospel of John, just in case you didn't know that, right? I, um, I decided one, one year, I was, I was doing youth ministry, and we had just renovated. We just built like a, an entirely new youth room. And I wanted to do one of those word clouds. You know what I'm talking about? You can like take text and make a word cloud out of it. And I took the entire New Testament, and it takes out all the, the common words, you know. Uh, and, and I did this word cloud, and the, the bigger the word in the word cloud, the more often it appears. And it turns out in the New Testament that Jesus and God uh, are like a big deal. <laughs> I know. I, it was crazy. <laughs> I mean, literally, the biggest words were God and Lord Jesus Christ. Like, those are, those are huge, right? So it'll be no surprise to come to the Gospel of John and just kind of be overwhelmed by the focus being on Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to see Christ glorified in three ways, okay? Number one, we're going to see Jesus glorified as John the Baptist humbly fades into the background. It's a good reminder for all of us in our life. Number two, we're going to see Jesus glorified as we consider the lowly stature of the men that he chose to call as disciples. And this may be a bit of a shock for some of you who believe that you have been, you know, called to Christ because of your great looks, you know, because you're so beautiful and, and smart and funny and you have such a winsome personality, right? We might find that Christ has other criteria that he's looking for. And number three, we're going to see Jesus glorified over and over as we recognize the titles of Christ and the incredible richness that's bound up in them. And, and I want to just encourage you, I mean, because there's no way we can unpack all of this this morning. If you're not in a small group, this is the week, okay? Go get into a small group. Small group leaders, I mean, just highlight these titles as we go through and, and just, I mean, you know, throw these titles out for discussion in small groups and your job is done. 
Christ is called, in, just in our passage here, Lamb of God, Rabbi or Teacher, Messiah, Prophesied One, Son of God, King of Israel, and the Son of Man. Did you come to church this morning expecting to see glorious things? Look at John chapter 1, verse 35 and 36. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And so here we have again the testimony of John the Baptist. This is the third of his testimonies. We had his testimony beginning in verse 19, uh, where John explains that he's simply the forerunner of Christ. And now we, have his, uh, we had his testimony in verse 29, where John testified to the person and work of Christ, calling him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so here in this scene, notice that John is standing with two of his disciples. One of them's Andrew. The other one's not named, but we might assume in light of the rest of the gospel that it was the apostle John. One of the things you'll notice as we go through the gospel of John is that John does not like to mention himself. Right? He's one of those guys, right? Some of you are married to one of those guys, right? I just, I just like to be in the background. I just like to be like nobody noticed me, right? And, and this is John. He's just pushing forward Christ. Uh, there's really only one definite reference to John, and even then he doesn't use his name. And so here's John the baptizer standing with perhaps the apostle John and Andrew, and he sees Jesus walk by again, and he cries out, Behold the Lamb of God. And what's the result? The result is that these two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And John said, hey, where are you guys going? Get back here. You're my disciples. No, that's not what John did at all, because that's not John's job. That's not John's calling. John is perfectly satisfied for them to go after Christ. Because remember, he's an ambassador, and he points away from himself. He's a witness who points to someone else. It's an incredibly humble posture. I'm afraid that I've known some folks in churches, maybe even some pastors, who would have had a hard time with this, who would tend to be jealous of their little group and, and, and want more people to listen to them and want more people to tell us you know, how wise we are. The pastors often want to gather people around them and grow numerically, not understanding how much more important it is to grow spiritually. John points away from himself. In fact, you can jump to chapter 3, verse 30, where John says, he must increase, Christ, right? Christ must increase, I must decrease. It's an incredible testimony. Now, we can't be sure about this, but I think our, our text indicates, and the testimony that we have of these early disciples is that they are already fundamentally believers. These are Old Testament saints. And of course, the message that they have believed is not yet a full-orbed message, Right? It's not the full understanding of who Christ is and, and what Christ is about to do. But they follow Jesus Christ based on the testimony of the word of God. In fact, they follow him, and then Jesus turns around in verse 37, and what does he say? What are you seeking? Like, they're, they're kind of creeping on Jesus, right? You know, they're just, like, following Jesus. Yeah, I, imagine, I don't know if Jesus is, like, looking over his shoulder, like, What's, what are you guys doing, right? But I don't think this is, like, an exasperated, like, what do you want, right? This is classic Jesus, this is Christ probing the, the heart of these men, making them look within a little bit and, and maybe consider their motives, their desires. It's a good question. We can just ask this question this morning. What do you want? What are you seeking? 
What are your goals? What is your purpose in life? S. Lewis Johnson says it this way, what's the one goal of your life? To make a living? To be successful in your business? Have a nice family? Have them grow up to be good citizens? Enjoy life? Be rich? Have fun? What is your purpose in life? It is possible that you've lived for the years that you have lived and you still do not have a concept of what it is to be a human being and the goals of an individual's life. And what we're seeing right here is men who understand that the goal and their purpose in life is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And it is about following him and devoting their life to him. We might even ask, as Christ asked, why are you here? What are you seeking? Why are you here in church this morning? You come to church on Sunday mornings as a, as a duty? You come to appease your spouse or out of habit or out of routine? Or do you come to know Christ and to learn of him? Now look at the disciples' answers. The disciples' answer to, to what are they seeking. It's kind of interesting. They say, uh, well, where are you staying? <laughs> Apparently, they were just looking for a Yelp review. Like, you know any good hotels? Is there you know, any good places? Well, you know, how would you rate on a scale of one to four the hotel? Look, like, they're not just interested in Jesus' accommodations. They want to know where Jesus is staying because they're going there. They want time with him. They want face-to-face -face time with Jesus Christ. Flip over to Psalm 42. Just, I, I couldn't help as I, as I saw this response and, and I imagined their desire to be with Christ. Psalm 42, verse 1. I could sing this for you, but I am vowing to you now that I will never do such a thing. All right. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, it's beautiful. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? That desire to know God, a desire to be close to Him. And you notice also back in, in chapter 1 of John in verse 38, what do they call Jesus? Rabbi, teacher. If someone is your teacher, what does that make you? That makes you their student, right? And so maybe there's quite a bit being said here. They're essentially expressing their intention to be his disciples. They're leaving John the Baptist as their rabbi, and they're attaching themselves to Jesus Christ. And what is Christ's reply? Come and you will see. Come and you will see. Come and see. This is a key phrase this morning. We're going to see it a couple of times. It'll be worth uh, having some discussion about this evening. The come and see draws you into spending time, to watching, to learning from Christ. And, and, and look what happened to these men. This is exactly what happened. Christ says, come and see, and guess what they did? They came, and they saw. And, and we're witnessing the beginning of the process. This is one of the things that I think is so beautiful about this passage is that like, we kind of know what happens later, right? So isn't it kind of fun? Do you, do you ever ever done this? Like you, You've seen a movie, but then you watch it with someone who's never seen it? And then you get to kind of enjoy the fact that they don't know what's going to happen and they're nervous and they're worried, but you already know like what's behind the door and who lives and dies and that the good guys win and you know, whatever. And so here we are knowing exactly what happens with these men. And yet we're seeing the beginning of this process. I mean, think about it. John the Baptist starts his ministry, right? And then Andrew follows him. And then Andrew meets Jesus and takes Peter to Christ and they follow Jesus. And Peter is the first to see the resurrected Christ. 
And Peter becomes this apostle who is a missionary force along with the other apostles that turn the world upside down. And then yada, 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 we're here at Heritage Bible Church this morning. I mean, I, I skipped some stuff in there, right? <laughs> it's incredible. This is like this little snowball that's just getting started, and it's going to turn into this amazing thing. It's exciting to see it unfold. In fact, this is such an incredible and memorable day that you see in the passage here, John said, it was the 10th hour. When I just imagine, like, you know, I don't know, John was, like, checking his smartwatch or took out his iPhone. He's like, i got to remember that. What time is it? You know, <laughs> like, this is something that, like, stuck in his mind. He remembers this well. It doesn't necessarily matter exactly when the time is. If you count it by the, 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 Jewish, count, uh, the Jewish clock, it's, it's 4 p.m. If you count it by the Roman clock, it's 10 a.m. Uh, it's not really the point. The, the point is their response, that in light of the obvious impact that their time with Christ had on these men, it is emblazoned on their memory. And it might be good for us to remember the impact that time with Jesus Christ can have on us. What if we have this same desire? What if we have the desire of these men to, to follow after Christ, to, to know him more, to dig in the depths of, of who Christ is and let it change our life? What would we do? We would go to the eternal word of God. And we would find these same truths and these same answers that these men were seeking. The value of spending time with Christ in his word. Continue on in verse 40. Actually look at verses 40 through 42. Where we read that one of the two who heard John speak and, and followed him was Andrew. And, and all the four gospels identify Andrew as the brother of Simon Peter. These are brothers from Bethsaida, a town north of the Sea of Galilee. Andrew and Simon Peter are living in Capernaum. They're working as fishermen when Jesus called them. Andrew is not, uh, there's not a lot about Andrew in the scriptures. This is for sure the lesser known brother, right? Don't you imagine Andrew was probably saying, oh, you're Peter's brother. He probably heard that a lot, right? Did you ever get that in school? Like, oh, you're, you know, you're known by <laughs> your relatives, right? Andrew's only mentioned three times in the Gospel of John, but I'll tell you something interesting about Andrew. Every time that he's mentioned, he seems to be bringing someone to Christ. He's an evangelist. And verse 41 literally says, he first finds his own brother. And I think, and my wife thought it was important that I point this out, Andrew must have had a good mother, don't you think? She, she taught Andrew, like, hey, look out for your brother. You know, especially if your brother's Peter, like, Peter can tend to get into some trouble, right? You know, Peter doesn't always know when to shut his mouth. So, like, Andrew, like, hey, just look out for Peter, okay? Help Peter out. Stick by Peter, okay? This is an important thing to, to, to teach our children. In fact, uh, I remember one time that my boys came home from school, and uh, I don't, uh, don't want to name any, you know, I don't, I don't want to name any names. It was Seth and Miguel, but um, <laughs> they, uh, they came home from school. Don't worry, Miguel, you're going to come out of this smelling like roses. It's going to be great. And, and Seth is telling me about uh, after school, some kid, like a couple grades older than him, was bullying him and was like, got him down on the ground and climbed on top of him and was like pummeling him in front of all the other kids. And I don't know what the teachers were doing, you know, they were out having a smoke or something. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so he's telling me this story, you know, it's kind of like dramatic stuff is happening here. And while he's telling the story, Miguel is nodding vigorously like, yep, yep, that's what happened. That's, that's exactly what happened. And I said, uh, Miguel, where were you? I was there. I saw the whole thing. I said, well, like, maybe, like, help your brother out? And there was, like, this light bubble, like, 
oh, that would have been a good idea. Right? I was just, you know, enjoying watching my brother get, get Paul. Now, that was 10-year-old Miguel. 18-year-old Miguel will come in guns a-blazing, right? So don't, in fact, we have it set up after church. If you want to watch in the parking lot, a couple of guys are going to jump Seth. And we're going to see if Miguel does anything. All right, that's a little test we have. Listen, Andrew loves his brother. He goes straight to his brother. He makes a beeline. And what does he say? We have found the Messiah. And he brings him to Christ. This is an incredible declaration. Andrew has come into contact with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first, first thing he does after his life-changing experience is he goes out and gets his brother. And that's evidence of fruit. Because this is our highest calling. What greater kindness can you do for someone than to bring them to Christ? And it begs the question, who was Andrew in your life? Who was that person who brought you to, to come and see Jesus? And maybe this afternoon would be a good time to reach out, make a phone call, send a text, and just thank them again for bringing you to see Christ. And also, lest we escape this without conviction... Who are you seeking to be an Andrew to? Who this week will you invite to come and see Jesus? And how will you do it? Make a plan in your mind to be an evangelist, to be passionate about bringing people to see Christ. Verse 42, Andrew brings his brother to see Jesus. Jesus says, you are Simon Johnson, right? Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which we usually say as Cephas. By the way, uh, just a side note, if Jesus gives you a nickname, accept it, right? I mean, this is like super cool. If you, Jesus gives you a nickname and it's going to be in the Bible forever, like, this is good stuff. And Christ calls him Cephas because it means rock in Aramaic and, and, and Peter in Greek. And, and Jesus calls Simon rock because Peter's character, but, but also because of this calling that he has, that all of the disciples and the apostles of Jesus have. Peter's going to become the first apostle to witness the resurrected Christ. He's going to take this lead role in Jerusalem among the apostles. And Ephesians 2.20 says that they are the foundation on which we are built. Their teaching, their testimony of Christ, who is the cornerstone. And the point being that this passage is, just like I said earlier, that, that little snowball that's going to roll down the hill and turn into this huge thing with the calling of Peter. Well, listen, it's not enough to just be in the line of these men in the sense that we are part of the organized church. As I said earlier, just, just coming to church, right? Just coming to church and being here or, or being a member of this church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going and standing in your garage makes you an automobile, okay? What we need, each one of us, is as individuals to personally experience what these apostles experienced. Personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you've never believed in Christ, your most primary need is to recognize, to recognize that you are a lost sinner, separated from God. But Jesus Christ the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, sacrificed himself for you to pay the penalty for your sins. And if you come to him, and if you receive him as your Savior and your Lord, you make a choice to follow him, you can begin a new life with God. You can have your sins forgiven. You can receive eternal life in the presence of God in heaven for all eternity. 
And I just want to encourage you. I do this all the time, but I, I, I want to constantly bring before you, if you have any questions about the salvation of your soul, the forgiveness of your sins, whether or not you have this personal relationship with Jesus Christ or what that even means, please seek me out, one of our other pastors, any of our elders, and, and talk to us today. This is something to have settled today. Verse 43 continues the story to the fourth day. And the Apostle John is describing here, 43 to 46. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. In this section, we see Philip and Nathanael responding to the call to follow Christ. We have Jesus, God incarnate, who is seeking and calling. I mean, it's kind of incredible to, to see, like, Christ purposed to go and, and find Philip. He intentionally goes and, and seeks out Philip. And, and I saw almost every commentator saying this, this, using this same word. It's one of my favorite words. I use it in reference to Scripture all the time. And that is that, that I always talk about how in the Word of God, God has condescended to us, Right? That is to say that, that God speaks eternal, infinite, you know, mind-blowing things to us in a way that we can understand. And here is the same word being used by all these commentators that Jesus Christ condescended to go and, and, and reach out. He's not just waiting, like, okay, I'll stand here and everyone that wants to come, come. No, he's seeking followers. He's seeking men. It's incredible to see that kind of love, that kind of compassion, that, that heart of Christ so as the Lord made, makes plans to leave Judea and go north to Galilee, he goes and finds Philip. And the reality is, Scripture doesn't have a lot to say about Philip, but uh, I think it's good for us to note that the men in our passage, Peter, Andrew, John, probably James, now Philip and Nathaniel, it seems that these men and some of the other disciples as well, who are all professional fishermen, they probably knew each other. They may have been friends, possibly co-workers, even before they were called by Christ. And one of the things I want us to, to, to have our attention drawn to is the fact that these are common men, ordinary men. John MacArthur has a book, 12 Ordinary Men, and he discusses this fact. He says, you, you might think that Christ would scour the whole earth to find the most gifted, most qualified men, but instead he singled out a small group of fishermen, a diverse yet common group of men with unexceptional talents and average abilities. They were perfectly ordinary men in every way. Not one of them was renowned for scholarship. They had no track record as orators or theologians. In fact, they were outsiders as far as the religious establishment of Jesus' day was concerned. They're not outstanding because of any natural talents or intellectual abilities. They were prone to mistakes, misstatements, wrong attitude, lapses of faith, faith and bitter failure. I'm starting to resonate with these guys. No one more so than the leader of the group, Peter. And even Jesus remarked that they were slow learners and somewhat spiritually dense in Luke chapter 24. But with all their flaws, with all these you know, character traits, as remarkable, as, as ordinary as they were, these men carried on the ministry after the ascension of Christ and impacted the world. And Christ knew exactly what he was doing, and he knew that it was 
their time with him, that it was the power of the Holy Spirit that he was about to send that would transform these men into the force that they were and enable them to accomplish the mission for which they were called. God can take ordinary people and do great things with them. All God really required of these ordinary men was availability. And Philip exemplifies that. Look at what an eager disciple Christ has called in Philip. Philip kind of reminds me of Simeon. Remember Simeon, Luke chapter 2, the old man who is in Jerusalem, and, he, and he's just this righteous, devout, godly man, and he's just waiting for, it says, the, for the consolation of Israel. He's just waiting for the Messiah to come. And here's Philip, a younger man, also looking for the Savior. And not only is he, like every faithful Jew, waiting for the coming of the Messiah, but he knows the Word of God. These might have been poor men and, and not super highly educated, but they knew their Bibles. He knew the Old Testament promises and, and, and prophecies. And so the Lord said, follow me. And there's no real explanation of these words, but it sure does seem to pack a punch. And there may have been more conversation there, but you know, from, from what we have, we just see this call, follow me. And I think embedded in that is a call for unconditional devotion it's just this simple, immediate act of obedience to Christ's words. I'm afraid that if I were inserted into this story at this point, and Jesus said, follow me, then I would have said, uh, oh, where, where are we going? What, uh, what, do you know what time we're going to get back? I mean, uh, you know, how are we going to get there? Like, do, I don't have my good sandals. Do I need to go get my good sandals? Is there going to be snacks along the way? Because I, you know, I, I need snacks. We're called the immediate, joyful obedience. And these men are so excited to follow the Christ that they have found. And not only does Philip follow, but again, he demonstrates the heart of an evangelist when he immediately goes and tells his friend Nathaniel about the Messiah. And now Nathaniel, uh, I kind of like Nathaniel. You like Nathaniel just based on what you just read here in this one verse? Because apparently he's kind of a blunt guy, right? Philip says to him, we found the one whom Moses and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. You'd think you would key in on like some like really amazing part of what was just said, but instead he keys in on the, the Nazareth part. And he says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Like that's the reason I'm doubting what you're saying. It's the Nazareth bit that's throwing me off. Nazareth had a poor reputation to be sure. Although it's a little bit ironic because Nathaniel is from Galilee and nobody liked Galilee. So I think it's like this case of like when you're being picked on, you've got to find someone smaller than you to pick on. Like I'm embarrassed that I'm from Galilee, so I'll make fun of Nazareth, and maybe that'll make me feel better. I don't know. It's not so much his distaste for Nazareth, although he was actually from Cana of Galilee, so I'm sure Nazareth and Cana, you know, they're in the same tribal territory. Maybe there was some rivalry there. I think they played against each other in eight-man football. I don't know. But, um, you know, there's this little bit of disdain here, right? But I think it's mostly this. It's mostly the connection of saying the Messiah is coming out of Nazareth. And I was thinking this week how I, I had a student who um, had gotten married and started a family, and uh, he got transferred to Las Vegas. And I thought, oh, wow, okay, great place to go raise your young family, right, in, in Las Vegas. And after he was there for a little while, I was talking to him, and he said, oh, I'm so thrilled we found a great Bible teaching, you know, just a, a Bible church that is just like nurturing us and we're finding great worship and fellowship and, and Bible teaching and we're just loving it. And I'm thinking in my mind, in Las Vegas? 
there's Bible churches in Las Vegas? Yes, there are Bible churches in Las Vegas. And yes, the Messiah is coming out of Nazareth. And again, we see that the Lord is using, is delighting to use the weak things of the world. He's calling these common men. He's coming from a, a common place, even a place that's disdained. I, I get a lot of, I, I see a lot of wisdom in Philip's response. Do you like Philip's response? He doesn't argue. He just says, come and see, right? Because guess what? If he can get Nathaniel to Christ, all his questions will be answered. And of course, that's exactly what happens. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. When Christ saw him coming, he says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, or I think King James says, No, no guile, right? At which point I always thought maybe Philip would speak up and say, Oh, yeah, you didn't hear what he just said about Nazareth, right? You know, like Philip doesn't sell him out. You know, I, I appreciate that. The reality is that, that Christ knows the heart of this man. It's incredible praise from the Lord. I mean, we've got people getting nicknames from Jesus. We've got people, you know, having their, their character, you know, just like uh, stamped into Scripture for everyone to see for all of eternity. I mean, this is, this is pretty neat. And it's especially neat when we think about the fact that we so often use the omniscience of God as kind of a, a club or a weapon, right? Even when we teach it to our children, like, what do we tell them? It's like, God knows. God knows what you're doing. God knows your heart. God sees everything you do. God, knows even, God even knows your thoughts, right? With the impression that, like, God is up there watching everything you do, and he's got a big two-by-four, and he's just waiting to smack you if you do something wrong. But look at the heart of Christ. It's not just everything, you know, every character flaw, but Christ knows when we happen to do something right, when there happens to be something good in us, when our heart is pure, when our motives are, are correct. Christ sees that. And how incredible is it, again, that condescending to this man and, and calling that out in him, and telling him that this is, this is an honest man, this is a pure man. It's pretty neat that Jesus knows Nathaniel's heart and his true character. Of course, Nathaniel's puzzled by all of this, right? How, how do you know me? I kind of like to do this, by the way. This is, a little, this is a little tip. You can try this at lunch today. Anytime you go somewhere where the employees wear name tags, just call them by their first name, right? They always get confused. Like, how do you know my name? They forget they're wearing name tags, you know, like, Gloria, your name is right there. That's, why, that's how I know your name. They're always trying to figure out how you know them, right? Well, Christ knows people. He's supernaturally empowered, right? Isn't it incredible that Jesus knew exactly not only Nathaniel's heart and, and character, but what Nathaniel was doing uh, b before, you know, uh, Philip came up to him. Jesus lived out his life in such perfect dependence upon the empowering and directing of the Holy Spirit that even in his humanity, he's able to do these miraculous things. Even as Christ incarnate comes to earth and he sets aside the independent use of his attributes, he's able to do these incredible things. And because of what Christ is able to do, Nathaniel recognized that he has insight into his soul, 
and, and Jesus answered him and, and tells him that he saw him, and, and he's telling Nathanael, not only do I know about you, but I know exactly where you were and what you're doing. And Nathanael knows right away, this is no ordinary person. And so he replies, Rabbi, you are the son of God. That's a, quite a declaration. He calls him the son of God, the, the king of Israel. And the, the things that he's saying to Christ go far beyond what you would normally say to your rabbi, right? Nathanael is acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament. And so here we are again with a faithful follower, with a man who knows the word of God. And this is right in line with what Philip has already said. And it shows Nathanael's awareness of biblical prophecy. And the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would be the son of God. Isaiah 9, right? A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, what? Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Matthew chapter 1 quotes Isaiah 7. It tells us that his name will be Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. It doesn't necessarily mean, by the way, in, in our passage here in John, that Nathaniel fully understood all of this. I don't know that at this point we could have jumped into the story and, you know, started asking Nathaniel questions about the Trinity and the Incarnation and all of these things, but, but he at least understood Jesus to be the Son of God in a messianic sense. And I think in a lot of ways, Nathaniel spoke better than he knew, but he's about to find some stuff out, right? And really, the experience that Nathaniel just had is exactly why John says he writes this gospel. Because he wants us to have the same experience, to, to come to know Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah, and to believe in his name. And this is the purpose of the miracles of Christ. To prove that Christ's astoundingly difficult claims about himself are true. His miracles testify to who he is. They, they validate his message. He really is who he claims to be. And notice in verse 50... Christ basically tells Nathaniel, uh, if you think that was impressive, stick around, right? And I don't know if there was like a little bit of a, you know, it, I mean, was Christ amused here? Does anybody else read verse 50 that way a little bit? Like, man, this guy's really impressed with like this miracle. Like some stuff is about to go down. Like you're going to really see some stuff. Each of the disciples are having their first encounter with Jesus. And they're only these encounters are only the beginning of what's to come. However persuaded they are by these encounters, imagine how their faith and their confession is going to grow as they walk and talk with Jesus Christ on a daily basis and they see everything that Christ is and says and does. Notice that Nathaniel also calls Jesus king of Israel. Gabriel announced to Mary that her baby would have the throne of David and reign over the house of Jacob. And Christ presented himself as king, and, and he affirmed to, to Pilate that he was born a king. And the Davidic covenant promises that Christ will rule and reign over the earth, and the fulfillment of the promise is going to be the establishment of his kingdom and his second coming. And it's incredible that Nathaniel, right at the beginning of the ministry of Christ, recognizes his kingship. One last verse. Verse 51. He said to him, Truly, truly... I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, that's interesting. 
I mean, what upcoming event in Christ's life is he talking about? I don't know that we know. It could be several things. It could be something we don't even have recorded or, or even know about. I mean, is Christ referring to, you know, Gethsemane, where angels came down and ministered to him? Is he talking about the ascension, uh, the ascension when the angels addressed the disciples afterwards? Does he refer to other events related to angels in the Lord's life? I mean, the reality is the entire life and ministry of Christ is a time of heightened supernatural activity, both demonic and angelic. But we should notice at least something that may be a parallel here, and this may be a little bit of a stretch. I think I read probably 20 commentaries this week that all just pounded this home, and they're all very convinced of it. I'm a little less convinced of it, but at least I see the, the parallel. I mean, this has to be one of the first things you think of, right? When you read this little statement here, angels ascending and descending, what do you think of in Scripture? Your mind probably goes to Jacob's ladder, right? Genesis 28. In Genesis 28, Jacob has a dream, and in the dream, a ladder stretches from earth all the way to heaven, and angels of God are ascending and descending on the ladder, because God has a message for Jacob, and what is an angel? A messenger of God. And so God, in this vision, in this message that he has for Jacob, he re reiterates the covenant that he made with Abraham and Isaac, promising them land and descendants, and, and promising to be faithful to Jacob. And so, in this vision, there is communication between heaven and earth. And the latter seems to suggest that the communication with the messengers of God going between heaven and earth, this is a, a message that is delivered from, from God to his followers. Well, notice the similar language of John chapter 1, verse 51. Except for one small substitution. Instead of a ladder, how do the angels ascend and descend in verse 51? He substitutes the ladder for Christ, the Son of Man, which is a title for Jesus. J. Vernon McGee says, So he has substituted for ladder, which is the place of contact between earth and heaven, the means of contact, the mediating thing, he has substituted the Son of Man. For he is the mediator between earth and heaven. Now he claims to be the ladder. This is really one of the great concepts of the Gospel of John. He is the one mediator between God and men. He is the one revealer of truth. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. So He is in effect the latter. And in effect He's saying, I'm the revelation of divine things. Jacob's ladder has become Nathaniel's son of man. And one last item of note on verse 51 is just this title, Son of Man. And we could, do, we could do an entire message just on this phrase, right? Son of Man. It's used for the first time here in John's Gospel. I think it's 13 times in the Gospel of John. But according to all of the Gospels, this is Jesus' favorite name for himself. And it's used 83 times in the Gospels, but only ever by Jesus about himself. And it's a name that is focused on the incarnation of Christ. It's focused on his humanity. It's focused on his lowliness. And so we see Christ declared in this passage by others to be the Son of God, and here he calls himself the Son of Man. Now this is much more, though, than just a title that declares the humanity of Christ. Son of Man is a direct claim to be the Messiah of Israel that comes out of the Old Testament. 
And faithful Jews like these men who know their Bibles would have immediately recognized Christ calling himself the Son of Man as a title from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And this incredible eschatological vision of Daniel is regarded as the description of the coming of the Messiah and his eternal kingdom. And so, Son of Man is a title that emphasizes Jesus as both the divine Son of God and man. And here we have the God-man, Theos and Anthropos, the only way, the point of access, the bridge, the ladder to God. When we come to him, we come into fellowship with God. We have found our Messiah, and we can come into abundant life through him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for incredible reminders of the greatness of your Son. Thank you for being a God who reaches down to us, who can do great things with ordinary men and women. Father, pray that we would be like John the Baptist, that the focus would never be on us. There's too much to say about Jesus Christ to put the focus on ourselves. Help us to be faithful like these men we read of this morning to be faithful, to take the message of the gospel to others, to bring people, to beg people to be reconciled to Christ, to beg people to come and see Jesus for all that he is. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.